0: Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining today, he's a mentor, keynote speaker, founder, and entrepreneur. It's Steve Fredlin. How are you doing today, Steve? <laughs> Real good, Alex. Great to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up.
1: Uh, well, I'm from East Central Minnesota. So if you know the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul, but an hour north of there. My wife and I are both like fifth generation from that area. Our kids are sixth. And so our whole life is in rural East Central Minnesota. Uh, you know, growing up, um, you know, I was a math guy. I was always kind of a math nerd. And so, you know, obviously like every kid, I'd ride bike and do all those kinds of things, but math was always the, the one thing that I was drawn to primarily because I was good at it.
0: Which what was there a specific type of math? That you liked, like there's like trig, ge- geometry, all those different kinds of math.
1: Yeah, you know that's that's a great question. I, I liked it all. I think you know geometry was like, man, I don't, I don't know. You know, just <laughs> sine, cosine, tangent is kind of kind of messy. And then you know, getting to college, I, I'm I'm an actuary. I'm a long time actuary, so kind of math continued forever. And the the stuff I really hated was when you get to college, the the abstract algebra where it just was abstract and it just didn't feel. Uh, tangible, and that's the stuff I really struggled with. But the rest of it, man, the calculus stuff, I, I really dug that.
0: I loved math growing up. That was my go-to subject. But it was, geometry was like, to me, the worst math. <laughs> like the solving a problem, algebra, calculus, like those kind of things. Yep. I'm good with that. But when you have to tell me the sin over cosine, I'm like, <laughs> you've already lost me. But math was so fun to me. And a lot of my friends were like, Why? I go. I don't know. It's just you're going to use that in when you get older, and obviously, I have used it when yeah. doing different daily activities.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things you kind of you kind of use forever. But you know, there's, we're all wired kind of different ways. There's certain things that that make sense to us, certain things that don't make sense to us naturally. And for some of us, math is one of those things that we, you just kind of get.
0: Growing up in Minnesota, a lot of people take it as it's cold there. But you talked about riding a bike. Did you like the outdoors? And that was kind of a way to explore the outside world? Yeah, a
1: a little bit. I mean, when you're up here, you're kind of outdoors is sort of inbred in you. But, you know, know, I I lived uh, my first seven years in a small town called Delbo, Minnesota, like four houses in downtown Delbo. And there's a cheese plant right across the road from us. And so I would ride the bike over and around the cheese plant. So, you know, don't don't get any grand ideas of what riding (laughs) the bike looked like here in rural Minnesota. It was it was that kind of stuff. But then as I grew older, we lived three, four miles out of the big city of Cambridge, you know, 8,000 people. And so I'd ride my bike, you know, everywhere I went because I didn't have a car when I was younger. So that was back in the day where you'd ride your bike three miles if you wanted to go to T-ball or those kinds of things. So that was kind of my my mode of transportation, my way to kind of get out into the world.
0: Growing up, were you able to like find a passion or something that kind of got you excited? Or was there something that affected you that kind of you couldn't find that kind of passion to focus on? Yeah,
1: I think I always loved sports. Um, you know, I was never a great athlete. I played quite a bit, but then I had all kinds of needless dislocations when I was 15 and that kind of stuff. So I still played sports some, but it was more just I loved watching them. I loved listening to the radio. And for people your age and younger don't know what a radio is. It's think <laughs> of streaming only, you know, with dials. Um, you know, so I used to listen to the we didn't have a TV for many years. And so I'd listen to the radio, listen to the football games and the basketball games. I'd try to envision myself. You know, envision, envision sort of the game going on. And I actually keep stats because i was a math guy. And so I kind of always loved the the sports. I was always just drawn to it. And, you know, if you're in Minnesota, it's pretty terrible to be a sports fan. So I'm not sure why I didn't release that. But uh, that was a big part of myself growing up.
0: Were you able to go to any of the games and kind of enjoy it besides listening to it on the radio? As, as I got
1: older, I got to go to a couple of Twins games back at the old Met Stadium before the Metrodome even, which has now become Target Target Field. Uh, and then I I mean, not very often. So I vividly remember doing those things. Like I remember my grandpa uh, I Uh was adopted in and my grandpa took me to a Vikings game and it was, I don't know, December and it was like five below and we had our long johns on and we had our thermos of hot chocolate and it was just this because it was all outdoors, you know, and it's just this beautifully freezing, terrible, wonderful moment. And so, you know, because it was pretty rare, it was very special.
0: You talked about just seconds ago being adopted in by your grandfather. Was your grandfather someone that was an inspiration or someone that kind of led you to a path?
1: Yeah, I would say I, I enjoyed him, but not necessarily that. So when I was adopted, my mom remarried and then I was adopted by my, my stepdad. And then so that was his father there. I think my grandpa and I we always had sort of a common bond. We didn't see each other a ton, but he loved sports. Like I remember watching the Vikings in his basement with him and he took me to that game. You know, he loved cribbage and I loved cribbage. And so we didn't see each, see each other a ton, but we kind of it felt like we just kind of understood each other, you know, uh, in ways that, you know, if I didn't feel like I was, didn't really fit in with the rest of the family, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think grandpa kind of got me and always was was gracious to me.
0: Besides your family, did you have anyone in your life that was kind of a mentor for you?
1: No, and I think that was a, a, something I missed growing up quite a bit. You know, I didn't really have a father figure that I was really close to or anything like that. And so I think that was kind of a hole for me for a lot of years until I got to college, uh, frankly. And so the, the closest thing would be, you know, if I'd go to my friend's house, like they, you know, their dad, you know, I'd be so jealous of, you know, their dad or whatever. And they were really close. And so they were, you know, always very nice to me, but it wasn't like a mentor or mentee sort of situation.
0: As you're growing up, sometimes we're asked that fun question. What is that dream job of for us? What was that dream job for you?
1: When I was growing up, um, yeah. I'd say, you know, I'd be a professional athlete, even though I was logical enough at that age to know <laughs> it would never it would never happen. And then it was then I was gonna be a sports announcer, oh. uh, you know, doing that sort of thing. And then my uncle said, Oh, you should be a sports agent. And so that kind of became the dream. But I never really chased uh anything related to sports. I think I always felt like that's not what I should do. You know, that wasn't what the expectation was. I should get a real job. Uh and so, you know, never really, never really chased those things. So the closest thing to a dream of a real job was probably being an accountant, right? Because I didn't know what an accountant did, but I just knew they did numbers all day. Like, how great would that be? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be an accountant. Um, so I became an actuary, which isn't too far off of that. So no, um, you know, I had dreams of what to do, but I never really chase them until frankly until recently when now it's you know doing more like you know speaking and that sort of stuff which just that feels like what i really want to be doing
0: if you were an athlete what sport would have that been
1: uh probably baseball probably baseball i think i think football is just too too violent and i don't think i have the right makeup for for football i don't think i can can get myself to that fever pitch where i really just want to destroy somebody Uh, that's just not really in my in my makeup um, you know, so like so probably soccer or baseball is probably the mentality that I have because it's, it's, it's sort of a game where it's very, um, uh, fundamentally sound. You have to be very fundamentally sound, less than just pure aggression. And I like, I like the team elements of of those sports more than I do. Like basketball is a team sport, but it kind of becomes this individualized thing. Um, so, so those are the ones I probably, I played tennis more than anything else, but if the dream of becoming professional was probably more on the, those other things.
0: Did you go right into college or go right into the workforce? What was that next path for you after high school?
1: Yeah, right to college. So, when went to a small school here in in the in in Minneapolis, I had opportunity to go to get a free ride somewhere else, but I wanted to stay close to home, which was sort of like, what am I doing? I don't know. Uh, but I yeah, I went right into college.
0: Why do you feel that you wanted to stay local? Was it family? Was it other obligations, things like that? Even though you had a full ride to a yeah, to,
1: college. to TCU, it could have been a, could have been a really fun year you're uh, following sports. No, I think, um, I, I think I just didn't know better. Like I think it just seemed the easier path, frankly. And I didn't really have anybody, you know, nobody in my my life had ever gone to college. It was a whole new experience for our family. So I didn't have somebody to be like, hey, what do you think I should do? What's the optimal choice for me? It was just like I went to I went to Augsburg. I visited it. People seem nice. I've talked to the math person. They seem nice. I'm like, okay. Like, like, I wish it was more of a decision, but it's just sort of like, it was kind of the easy choice. Uh, I just started dating somebody who'd become my wife, but that really wasn't uh, the key driver in this thing. I think it was just, frankly, I think it was just easier to do it that way, which is sort of odd when I look back at my life. Normally, I kind of really look for those, those optimal decisions. But for that, for whatever reason, I was just kind of like, well, eh, that's fine.
0: I think some people after college, they look back, they're like, did I make the right choice going to that right university? And I went for a certain degree when I got there, they took away that program. And I'm like, well, why did I choose? I chose here for a reason. But then as I looked at the other choices, I'm like, I made the right choice because Mm -hmm. I don't think I could see myself living how I was in a different university, but it's always those what ifs situations where, you had to be in that time to know, was it the right choice? Should I have done this? Should I have done that?
1: Yeah. And I think looking back, it's a weird decision for me because I don't regret it because, you know, you make the friends, you make, the you know, all these situations that you don't know what would happen otherwise. But, like, I love sports. Why didn't I go to, like, a Big Ten school or go to TCU yeah. or go somewhere where there's – I could actually, you know, partake in some of those awesome, you know, big school activities? I went to a Division III school school that had terrible sports other than wrestling you know and so and you know the math program had like eight kids in it like so maybe I liked that personal attention but in hindsight why didn't I go to like a big 10 school or some something else so it's kind of a weird decision I think I must have just been either too stressed out about it or or what but but yeah I don't so I don't really have any regrets I think it was an odd decision looking back but I don't really look at it and go like, hmm I, I, I tend to think well I was doing the best I could I, I made the best decision that I could at the time that I was equipped to make at the time.
0: During the time of college, usually it tells people they face some challenges or they find some new life in them. What was going on for you? Did you face a lot of challenges, both personally and educationally? Or was this a time where you really were learning more about yourself?
1: Yeah, probably both. Um, You know, I'd always kind of been a mature kid, if if you will. And so went to college. I think what helped, what was the biggest thing in college was getting kind of a path for how I was going to use math. Mm-hmm. So I was good at math, right? So I went to college to study math, but I didn't really know what I was going to do with math. And I met up with a mentor who recommended actuarial science. And I'm like, what is that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> he said, well, it's rated the number one job in the country. I'm like, well, tell me more about that, you know? And so that kind of put me on a, on a trajectory. Um, and I think his confidence in me, uh, created confidence in myself as well that like, well, maybe I am capable of actually having a very good professional job because I don't know that I was sure. If I could or not. And, you know, so I think that was it personally. um, You know, I was actually, I was married with a year left in college my wife had, or, you know, uh, so, you know, so I mean, that was kind of already, I was already kind of an adult uh, at that point going to college.
0: Did you feel you were ready for marriage at that time?
1: Yeah. I did, you know, looking back, I'm like, what, what did our family, what must have they have thought? <laughs> you know, cause I mean, we were married. I was, I was 20 or yeah. What was it? 21 to 20 or something. You know, we were engaged at like 19. So like, I'm sure the parents are like, what is going on? And it was a different time than now too, but yep. you know, we, but we felt, we felt mature. We felt, you know, old enough to handle it. And, and, and we did, you know, we're still, still together here, or whatever, 31 years later. So it's something worked, but, But no, I think, I think you know, at that age, a lot of times you just, you don't know what you don't know. And you think, well, of course we're ready for marriage, you know, and then you get into it and you just kind of figure it out. I mean, I think that's just, I don't know, you know, were we ready or not? I don't know, but we figured it out.
0: Especially with situations like during your time, you didn't have social media. You didn't have like all these reality shows that are showing the bads and the goods of relationships and marriages at a young age, where if someone nowadays did that well there's all these bad influences and things like that out there that is going to trigger a parent saying no you're not going to do this so it's right. what you guys were probably ready at that time and the situation yes. was right
1: well and i think you know you're you know i talk a lot about you know you're kind of raised with default you're kind of this is the expectations on you and that's sort of like where we were raised it's sort of like well you know, you, you're in a relationship for a while, then you get married. Like, that's just what you do. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that was just kind of the next obvious path. We go to college and so we get married and then you have kids a couple of years later.
0: What was next after college? Did you know what job you were going for or was this now a searching time
1: for you? It was a little searching because, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be an actuary, but I was working on contract at a company called 3M here in Minnesota. And, and I loved the job. It wasn't actuarial, but I loved what I was doing. Uh, but it wasn't full-time with benefits. It was full-time, a contract. Mm-hmm. And I was married. and like, well, we need to get benefits. Uh, and so I gave them kind of a six-month notice. I said, if you can't, they are in a hiring freeze. And I said, well, I'll give you six months. And then I've got to find a full-time job. And they weren't able to do it. Um, and then it was about, it wasn't so much about looking for the job as much as looking for the company I wanted to work for. So there's a company that was called Lutheran Brotherhood in Minneapolis. It eventually became Thriving Financial. Um, they they merged a few years later, but I knew I wanted to work for them. I just you know, I knew people that worked there. I just loved the vibe of the company. I loved everything about it. And and they did not have any actuarial openings. And so I approached them. I said, Here's the deal. I want to be an actuary. Uh, I know you don't have any openings, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes just to get my foot in the door uh, and work my way up. And then if, if and when there are openings, I'd love to be considered. And and so they hired me in to do data processing, to do like annuity, taking paper copies of annuities and manually entering them into the computer. And I did that for about three months till somebody said, you gotta be doing something else. <laughs> so uh but but no, that was so that was really the search was where did I want to work? What kind of situation do I want to be in, even more than you know, chasing the the dollar or the job?
0: So I want to go back to the contracting job. Sometimes we hear negatives about contracting jobs because mm. you don't know how long it's gonna last. Like you said, it doesn't give you benefits, but you're getting that opportunity to gain experience yeah. in that job. What was the pros and cons for you? You mentioned that the benefits was a con, but was there anything about the whole being in a contracting job, a pro and a con? Oh, I, I loved the whole I loved it all because I I worked there for about three years during college. And
1: you know, when I was in college, I mean I'm trying to make ends meet. I was getting I had gotten married and so I'm working like four jobs, you know, in addition to going to school full time and trying to figure things out. And then I was able to get this opportunity at 3M as a contractor job. So, you know, a real reputable organization, a big company. I had to figure that out and it paid, it turns out, a lot better than working security at the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it got paid well, but just the exposure of that. So I think the job itself, the company itself was great. The fact that it was contracting uh, probably didn't make a huge difference to me one way or the other. I mean, they were as long as they paid me every week, uh, that was perfectly fine. I guess there is, you know, you don't feel as much loyalty to them when it's contracting gigs. So in a way, that's good in a sense, because you just like, well, we just have a transactional thing here. You pay me for this many hours. And we'll just get it done. You know, I didn't, there's not the same level of ownership. Uh, they don't, you can't just work overtime. You know, when you have a job, it's just like, well, congratulations. You're working full time. Now you're exempt from overtime. So now you can work 60 hours and not get paid anymore. You know, when you're contracting, if you ended up having to work extra, you got paid extra. So no, I thought it was a great thing. And, you know, from their perspective, as an employer perspective, it's a great way to bring on college students and people that were that were young, and kind of test drive them without making a big major commitment to them. So in a sense, it, it almost serves like a an internship. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I loved my time there.
0: Did working ever take an effect on you personally? Like, did it get overwhelming, stressful, anything like that? Well, I think just the number of hours I was working, I mean, even as
1: a college student, I was working full time and I was probably working 40 or 50 hours in addition to college because piecing it together, however, I could get through school, you know, so I think just from a sheer volume perspective, and then, you know, I mean, I still have some college experience, but I didn't have the college experience that a lot of people have, or it's like, ah, you go to class from, you know noon to two, and then you kind of got all the rest of the day free. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a, it was a different experience when, you know, you're really having to work your way through college. And then eventually when you get married, uh well, you're still in college, but um yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm the way that I'm wired. My personality is I don't mind. I'm not afraid of work. I, I don't mind working. I work all the time now. I mean, I work a ton of hours, but a lot of that is because I really enjoy what I'm doing. And I know that sounds cliche, but um you know, we're all, we have different pieces of how we're, how we're put together. And for me, Working was just sort of a natural thing. I think I'd always worked since I was really young. You know, my, my single mom with two kids, and, you know, we always had to do our part. And so I think, you know, the work ethic was just always part of who I was.
0: You talked about earlier being like you didn't have a father figure. When we're now leading into you leaving the corporate world and starting your own company. Mm-hmm. Did you kind of have that you wanted to be a leader, not as a father figure, but be a leader, be a mentor for future generations where if they are following in your footsteps, they see kind of an example, a good example?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't I didn't think of it that way, but it's turned into that, Um, you know, I mean, I know so many people that have been. You know, in their jobs forever, that kind of wish that they had taken a leap and they're still thinking about taking the leap. Uh, and so I, I can serve as that sort of resource for them to, to say, you know, what was, what was your experience? What was that like for you? And I can be honest about the good, the bad, the ugly and you know, all of it. So I didn't take the leap as a, as a, I don't think, you know, who knows, right? What's going on in our brains? What's going on in the psychology of it all? I, I don't understand all that, but you know, I did, I did not, uh, at least consciously think of that as, Um, this is a way to kind of pave the way for others and to be a mentor and be an example for other people Um, it you know it has served that role in terms of you know with my kids and with other people I know that they can see that hey sometimes you can take risks and still be okay you know Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it wasn't that was not the intent of it
0: what made you want to start your own company was there a certain moment in time that was like I need to do this
1: there were periods throughout the, I mean, I, I was in the corporate world for a long time, 25 years or more. Um, there were periods throughout where I'd be like going through different phases where I'm like, I just need to do my own thing. And, you know, I I sort of satisfied that by always doing something on the side. So I started a nonprofit on the side and doing work in Rwanda. And I spent 12, 15 years, you know, focusing there. And I'd start podcasts and I'd start, you know, poker training sites. I kind of always started things on the side uh, as a way to sort of fill that, fill that um, creative entrepreneur, innovator sort of thing. So there were seasons where it's like, oh, should I start my own company? Uh, No, I got to keep being stable here. And then the, I mean the 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 way my career ended ultimately was was anxiety. Uh, I'd never experienced anxiety my entire life, uh, and then all of a sudden there was just this, bam, um, terrible. Just like what is going on here? Um, and I it was just debilitating, frankly. And I didn't know what to do with it. Um, you know, I, mean, I was seeing psychologists and all, all that sort of stuff too. And I ended up going on disability for a while, and I, which is, for somebody like me, I just I that mortified me, like. Uh, I'm not working. I'm getting paid. I'm not working, but I can't figure out what's going on in my brain. And I was just confused. And I was worried what other people thought. Cause I felt like, well, my employer probably thinks I'm faking it. And, you know, just, it was a terrible, terrible time. And finally I just cut the benefits off. So just take me off whatever. Cause I don't, I, I don't want to live with the stress of thinking people think I'm taking advantage of the system. It wasn't that long, okay. uh, but that, so that was kind of the, you know, it was there already kind of in the background, whatever, but that was the one that said, well, um, this seems to be the time to, take a run at doing my own thing. So I wish it was a more strategic sort of thing, but that was kind of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess.
0: Going through anxiety and mental health is a big thing nowadays. Did you have any support or did your family be those big supporters for you to get through it, to help you with anything that you needed when you were going through it?
1: It was, it was tough. I mean, it was, I mean, my wife was great. Um, she was fantastic, but she's the only one that really knew about it. People probably, if they're listening to this now, they're going to find out that people didn't know about it. But I mean, my boss, um, you know, was just sort of, they, they couldn't really get involved. They had to know about it. But they couldn't really be at the support thing. Like you had to kind of separate yourself yeah. from there, my wife. And then I was trying to protect the rest of my family from what I was really going through. So, um, no, I was kind of on my own with, with my wife and then with the therapist.
0: How did you get into poker? Like <laughs> naming all the, the, um, yeah the different side business, but I have a theory on how poker might've played because it has to do with math in a way. Well, kind of the analytic aspect of yeah. poker, but what got you wanting to do that? Yeah. When you first start playing
1: uh, poker, you think it's all math. And then by the end, you're like, there's a little bit <laughs> yeah. of math here, but a lot of it's yeah. like, <laughs> um, and strategy. No, it's interesting. So, um, I used to go fishing. I don't, this will get there. My, I used to go fishing with my three kids and they kind of lost interest in that when they had become teenagers, And so I chatted with a couple of my buddies and we had like 10 teenagers between the three of us. Mm -hmm. And We were just talking one day, like, how do we connect with our kids? Because that's important to us. How do we stay connected and keep those relationships with our kids? Because, you know, I think for me, I didn't have that. And I wanted to make sure I had that with my kids. And and one of them said, has anybody ever really played poker? And we're all like, (laughs) we're like, no. And so this is like, I don't know, maybe 2010 or something. So it wasn't that long ago. And so we started playing be like 13 of us sitting around playing Texas Hold'em at night for like 25 cents for the whole night, you know, playing poker. And a few of us just fell in love with the game. It was like, wow, this game is awesome. And so we actually played, we have leagues and we had little like homemade trophies, and it was it was really fun. Uh, but then you know, that probably lasted two, three years, and then a few of us. Just really fell in love with it myself included, and then I started a podcast because uh, that's sort of how I do things. Like, uh, I, it's an excuse to learn from the best people, and it's an excuse to kind of you know pick people's brains. You know that that come on your show. You know this, mm-hmm. and so I started the podcast, and from there, just kind of kind of took off.
0: Was it kind of a way to build a build bonds, build a memory with your kids because yeah. it was something that you get to do with them. And a lot of times parents will do anything that they, their kids are passionate about because they want to make those memories. And you kind of found a way to really enjoy it. And it just made it stronger.
1: Yeah. 100%. 100%. I mean, that, that's, that was a whole impetus was how do we connect with the kids? How do we? find something that we like to do that they like to do that we can all do together we can laugh and yeah. and joke and so that really was what it was and it made those memories uh for at least I don't know 2 3 years at least where we we kind of had those so it it accomplished that mission for sure and then a couple of them kind of stayed interested in poker for a while some of them didn't but it's it was really great you know that period of time was a great bonding thing not just between me and my kids, but me and those other guys between all 10 kids, you know, kind of really to build those relationships and even for them to have relationships with other adult men. And, and, you know, all of that was just, I thought a great, a great situation.
0: Are you kids nowadays trying to take more money from you with poker or do they, they don't, none of them even play. None of them
1: even (laughs) play. (laughs) <laughs> I, I guess you know a couple of them would if like we had a little if we did a home game or something they would they might play but they're not really into it at all but uh no I I was i have two boys and a daughter and I was saying like, my daughter was really getting good at it too like she was she was pretty good at it but then you know we kind of once we all kind of lost interest they all kind of moved on to their other things when they got into you know deeper into their teenage years and an the interest in soccer or boys or whatever it might be you know <laughs> it, it kind of disbanded but that was that was fine. But yeah, they'll, no, no, they never took it easy on me and I never took it easy on them. And I remember getting, I got four of a kind against my son's full house one time. And it, I was like, I was so excited because I knocked him out of the tournament, but I was also as a father just devastated because he had a full (laughs) house and he, he thought a hundred percent, he was for sure good. And he couldn't believe I had four of a kind. And it was, you know, it was one of those moments where we're like, Oh, this is awesome. But yet I just feel terrible for my son, you know?
0: And then there's those parents that's like, Hey, no holds barred. I'm trying to win.
1: Well, I, I am kind of that way. Like I, I've always told them, I said, you know, and I'm not mean about it, but I'm always like, if you beat me at something, I didn't, I didn't let you win. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so my daughter and I used to play tennis all the time and I beat her all, you know, beat her all the time, of course, but then she started getting better and getting better. She ended up, you know, breaking some records on the high school team. She ended up really good, but we still remember that day when she beat me for the first time and it was devastating to me, but also, you know, very conflicting because as a father, I was so proud of her. And then like, I think I won one more time the rest of our lives. Like she beat me every single time since then. So, but no, I think, I think, you know, for, it was kind of a joke. We kind of joked about it. You know, it's never really like in your face, but I always told him, if you beat me in whatever it is, if it's chess, checkers, tennis, whatever it is, it's going to be legit because I'm not going to like say, Oh, here you can win. I mean, maybe I did at Candyland when they were four or something, but <laughs> other than that, I don't think I've ever
0: let them win anything. As a business business owner, what's been the most challenging part about that experience? We have listeners that might be on that path right now. What has been some challenges that have been hard for you that you have tried to work to get better at?
1: For me, it's sales. Uh, you know, I mean, I worked in the corporate world for 25 years and I never had to sell anything. It was doing actuarial work. And, you know, I mean, you sell yourself and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. You talk to the executives, but I never had to like sell a widget. I never had to get somebody to, you know, to separate. I never had to try to separate them from their money. And I think, you know, when you're now you're working for yourself and like, okay, nobody's just handing me a paycheck. Yep. Um. You know, I, I started doing, you know, more coaching, consulting, that sort of thing. And now I do speaking and it's it's you know it's not just free money out there you have to find somebody that's willing to actually give you money to uh, for your services and so sales is sales is really really tough for me it's still really really hard for me because i'm a terrible negotiator and you know whatever I'm like somebody could hire me for a fee and by the time we're done with the conversation i could have talked them down to paying me less i mean i just i just i just hate sales so i think some people love it so i think it's it's no matter what you do There's going to be parts of it that you're not good at. For some people, it's, man, I just hate the administrative parts of it. That part doesn't bother me as much. For some people, it's the sales. Some people, it's the human contact, you know, having to talk to people on the phone. You know, it's just, it's different. You know, I think it's pretty rare that you find somebody that's just like, man, I love all of it. So there's going to be pieces that you don't like. And I think what you learn is, okay, which pieces can I outsource? Which pieces do I just have to suck up and do it? Which pieces can I, you know, follow my own path on? Um, so, but yeah, I, long answer to short question, but sales was kind of the one piece for me that I've, I've really struggled with and still do to this, to this day.
0: Is there been anything that you've had to use to learn how to become better at sales to kind of break you out of your shell and get you uncomfortable with it so that you become comfortable with it?
1: Yeah, I think the best thing I've done is I've surrounded myself with the right people. I mean, I talk about that a lot in my talk. So I started like a speaker's mastermind. And so we get together every week and, you know, talk about our issues and that sort of thing. And I've had conversations with other people say, I'm terrible at sales. Help me understand this. And so for me, you know, because you can read stuff, you can watch videos, whatever. But to have that conversation with somebody and ask them questions, that's been the biggest thing. So for me, it's, it's been less about like sales tactics, even though people tell you there's more tactics. It's more about that. That pivoting my, my perspective on, I'm not trying to sell them something, I'm trying to add value, I'm trying to serve them. And not from a, like a tacky sort of way, but an honest way. And I think that's helped me to realize, you know, I'm not trying to convince them to pay me to come speak at their event. I'm offering them an opportunity to have me come in and transform their their group, their team, their whatever. Uh, and, you know, and so you know, that's kind of helped, but just, you know, surrounding myself with the right people, getting advice from the right people, and and then just courage, frankly.
0: We kind of talked about you getting into keynote speaking, but when was the first time you're like, I want to try this or I want to get into this more?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've been speaking for quite a few many years in terms of because of my job. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, like I mentioned, I was an actuary and, you know, actuaries don't like to speak, right? Like they're, right. they're accountants but without the personality is kind of the joke. And so I never really minded it. I was in theater in high school and, and that sort of thing. And so whenever there was an opportunity to speak either at the company or even at a conference, they'd be like, hey, Steve, you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And, and I loved it. Um, I, I loved the rush of it. I mean, it, I would be nervous and I'm still nervous before every talk, but I, I loved the adrenaline rush of it. I loved the idea of, I've got some teacher in me. I love the idea of taking complex issues and being able to simplify them and share it with other people and have the light bulb go on. So um, I've always loved that piece. And so it's been part of what I've done the whole time. I never really thought that that could be like a career. I mean, I know there's professional speakers, right? I know there's mm-hmm. the Tony Robbins of the world and, you know, people that land a plane on the Potomac, you know, get to be professional speakers. And, you know, if you ever cut off your, your arm in a wilderness accident, you could be a speaker, you know, but I didn't know that was actually something that people could do like me that didn't have that kind of a story. And, um, so yeah, it's just been within the last couple of years that I thought, you know, I, I love doing that. I was combining it with different things. And, you know, I, I just love, I love that. So. It goes back a ways, but it's been a pretty new revelation as far as making that kind of my my key uh, business model.
0: You just mentioned how you don't feel that you don't have a story. But when you're getting up on stage, what is the big message or mission you're trying to convey to an audience?
1: Yeah, and it's changed a bit now. It's depending, It depends on the audience still, but overarching, it's this idea of life is an adventure, make it epic. Mm -hmm. like and so if i'm talking to individuals that are just sort of a a general audience the message is man we're you know picture your life like a safari and i'm known as the safari dude because i've been on all these east african safaris and and so i kind of challenge people think about your life like it's a safari and how do we make it more epic and then you know i just was out in washington state talking to a group of employees so people in their workforce talking to them about how can we make our jobs more epic how can we you know have that kind of camaraderie how can we understand the big picture the big vision how can we feel like we're riding through the Serengeti with the top down, the wind blowing through our hair. And, you know, not from a kitschy sort of way, but a real, you know, some real tangible things. It's grounded in data because I'm an actuary. I studied the data. I know it motivates people. I know what drives employee happiness. So talk to it on that level. And then from a leadership perspective, I can talk to them about how do we do this in our teams? How do we get the right peeps in our Jeeps? How do we build the right teams? And who are the right people? And who are the wrong people? I think, you know, a lot of times we think of, you know, we got to get people with the most skills, knowledge, and abilities. And at the end of the day, those people are not the ones that are productive. They're not the ones that are engaged. It's people who are aligned with the mission. And so, you know, there's, there's different depending on different audiences, but the the whole core of this whole thing is, man. We we are on an adventure. Life is an adventure. Work is an adventure. There's highs, lows, knowns, unknowns. Just like when you're on the Serengeti, you don't know what's around the next corner, or lurking in the grass, or in the you know in the water. And so, how do we make that epic in the midst of all of that ups and downs, highs and lows? How can we be happier? How can we have a more epic experience? And then, so that's kind of what I present to people is get yourself in that framework. Start thinking of your life, your job, your leadership as an adventure and then figure out how do we make it more epic. And a lot of that is surround yourself with the right people.
0: Do you feel, you talked about safari and kind of having that epic adventure. Do you feel it would be hard if you didn't have that epic adventure or working in a different country when you're coming back where you have that talk you be able to talk about leadership building a team but having that personal connection I feel is important for when people are speaking because that's how a lot of people can connect is they can see that and they're able to incorporate that into their lives do you feel that was an important aspect of your story that helps connecting with listeners yeah i
1: think if i understand the question right yeah i think you know I need to I need to bring them to the place where they understand enough about what a safari is. What does that yeah. what does that look like to be on a safari because we all have this default understanding of it's riding through the Serengeti looking for lions and it's amazing the whole time. But there's you know there's different things that happen there's different experiences and so part of it is getting people to understand kind of what a safari is and kind of the awesomeness of it but the you know the perils of it and and the boring parts of it and and all of those things. So I think um the fact that I've had those experiences it it creates this sort of um, mystic sort of feel. Like people are like, oh my God, I'd love to go on safari. That's my, on my bucket list. So there's that sort of compelling element to this thing, right? But I need to help them understand like what a safari is and what it's not. Right. Um, so, but then once you kind of get them there now, you start having them start thinking about their life like that. And you see people start drawing their own inferences. Like they're starting to think about like Lord of the Rings and it's this epic adventure, right. And I've got to bring the ring to Mordor and, you know, and I've got all those people with me, the fellowship. And, you know, I think people start drawing their own connections, but yeah, it is, you know, it's important to have those stories, those compelling things that that sort of that analogy that you can equate it to, but if they don't really have any idea what a safari is, then it's kind of lost on them. So you do have to, set that framework enough where they can go like oh okay um i mean the one thing that that's really resonates with people is this idea of getting the right peeps in your jeep so that's part of that safari thing and that's the part that people you know i've talked to a bank a couple years ago and they just emailed me they said we're still talking about the peeps in our jeep you know that that idea of because that's this language that's like kind of fun like hey the peeps in our jeep and we're bringing somebody new into our jeep and um so yeah you have to somehow bring the that sort of crazy experience and make it personal for
0: them well, especially if you took 10 people that you talked about being in a safari, each one of those people are going to have their own viewpoint, yeah. own opinion about it. And even when I'm thinking about my safari, well, I live by rice the Challenge, and my challenge is that safari that I'm going through, where each obstacles, each animal I see is triggering a certain challenge that I'm facing. Mm-hmm. So it just shows you that everyone can connect to a simple item in so many different ways. But when you look at the end of what they're coming up with, it's exactly what you're preaching or what you're telling to an audience. It's just, how do they get there in your way of conveying that to them?
1: Yeah, and that's where you can't be so prescriptive and say, here's exactly what it is. You kind of give, you leave it open and say, we all have, you know, we all are surrounded by elephants from time to time, right? If I tell a story about being surrounded by elephants, what does that look like for you to be surrounded? When was the time when you were surrounded by elephants in your life? I don't know. Everybody's got their own... (laughs) Your own thing, right? When's the last time a silverback gorilla stared you down and you thought I was going to snap you in half? That's the kind of stuff that, you know, so it's a great story. And then they bring you bring it home like that. And like, you know, okay, when's the last time? Okay, when's the last time that you were driving through the Serengeti with the top down the wind blowing through your hair? And there was high fives and smiles everywhere. And people are like, I don't know, years been years. Yeah, you know. You know, and that's where like I don't know people's lives, but if you can if you can communicate it in a way where they like grab hold of it, like okay, that was getting mugged by a baboon. That's what that situation was. Um, but yeah, so you have your own personal journey. I'm not going to pretend to understand that, but I think that what I what I've learned on my personal journey is here's some of the ways that uh, some of some of the common themes from my time in Africa, from my time as a coach, and my own personal journey. Some of the things that have helped me um, view my life more epically and frankly become happier. Uh, and then, yeah, I try to apply that to the general audience.
0: Has there been a event stage that has been memorable for you?
1: That's a good question. Um, they're they're all memorable. I mean, I I know that sounds really cliche, but they're all memorable. I mean, I, I mean, I'll, I'll pick on the one just from last week because it was the most recent. And it, the the reason I loved it is because it wasn't an event stage. It mm-hmm. was like seventeen people this guy flew me out there to talk to his team and talk to the leadership about how do we, how can we cultivate, you know, greater community? How can we cultivate, you know, greater alignment to the mission and get people in vision excited and that sort of thing. And the reason it was so memorable is because I, I just, I did like a, a conversation. I mean, I shared some thoughts. and we just started having conversation. I started asking them questions and they got to where they needed to get to on their own, just through asking questions. So rather than me telling them, here's the answer from the stage, you know, it's me saying, well, what about this? Tell me what you do. And they tell me what they do. I'm like, why does that matter? You know, they were like, they're in IT sales and recruiting. So I'd say, well, what do you do? Well, we we recruit people to serve, to work for IT companies. So who who cares? What, what about that? You know, so we started asking this question. And pretty soon we get to the point where they realize that one of their one of their customers is T-Mobile. And t mobiles in telecommunications. And T-Mobile allows this 95-year-old grandma to speak to their grandchildren before they die of COVID because nobody can see them. hmm <laughs> Well, and so you take this this idea of I just work in IT, recruiting, and sales, and pretty soon you are a, a small piece, but a piece. You're a piece of that overall mission that allows the grandma to talk to her grandkids before she dies of COVID. Yep. I mean, and they got there, and there's all of a sudden like I've got this whole new view of what I do, and so that you know, to me, that's memorable because you know having a big stage being flashy you know having intro music and all that sort of stuff that's all cool but that's not really my heart i'm not there to become famous i'm there to actually transform lives i want that to be part of my legacy and now i know that there's some people in washington state that i'll probably never see again that were transformed by my message that are having a new outlook on their job. They're, they're finding greater happiness at work because they realize they're part of something bigger than them, bigger than themselves, that they're part of this group of people. There's a sense of belonging. And so to me, that's, what's important. That's, that's really what I'm trying to do and try to leave my legacy for the, whatever, however many years I got left.
0: A lot of our listeners love to learn more personally about our guests. So talking about you, do you have any goals that you have set for yourself that are fine professional that you hope to accomplish in the next few years, or something that you're hoping to achieve or go after? Yeah, I mean,
1: I'd love to get to the point where I'm delivering 80 talks a year. Um, That's not going to happen this year. Uh, My goal is 44 this year. Um, And some of those are free, like I think it's 26 paid talks I want to have this year. So it's not a huge goal for somebody just setting out it's you know, it's, it's a process there. But I would love to have speaking be my full-time thing. You know, and that could change. I know myself well enough to know that that could change in a couple of years. But as I look at it right now, what I want to do is, and I, I want to have, you know, 80 talks a year. And I want them all to be inbound where I'm not doing any sales. I want them all to be referrals from people or speakers bureaus or whatever, reaching out saying, hey, are you available on this date? And being able to do it and not have to do any sales. So I would love to spend all of my time preparing, you know, editing, modifying, enhancing uh, my talks, and then just delivering them to different audiences around the world. Like, people think, oh, that sounds amazing. And it is, it would be amazing. But there's a lot of work still involved there. But that's really my my professional goal is to do that. And then I don't have to worry about all the other stuff. Because as a business owner, somebody coming from the corporate world, I'm still trying to make the ends meet. Like, like, things aren't like happening like this, where I'm just, oh, loaded in money and everything mm-hmm. else. I'm still like, I've got my substitute teaching license so I can fill in a day here and there if I need to. You know, I'm doing I, I officiate weddings for a few hundred bucks. Like I'm still doing all of these other things to try to make ends meet. And so I would love to be able to focus on just the craft of delivering a powerful transformational keynote talk and just doing that. Um, So that's that is sort of the the BHAG that I have.
0: Here in your journey, you started as a contractor, then you went to corporate, you went to business owner, still doing that. But now you're kind of going back into the contracting kind of way where mm-hmm. speaking, do you, is it crazy to think it's kind of full circle where contracting, but you're doing it for what you love to do, which is speaking, doing those different small hustles, but in a fun way where you have full control over when you're doing it instead of a contractor kind of, okay, you're working these many days, but it's ends. You kind of can continue this going on for as long as you want.
1: I haven't thought of it that way, but that is interesting. That that full journey, because they are contracts. I mean, that's what's happening. Right. But they're for, you know, short term for this one hour or, you know, this one day or whatever it might be. But yeah, I mean, I have full control over that. You know, right now I'm taking pretty much anything that comes in the door, but not everything, and what I envision is I don't have to take everything like, you know, I mean, eventually there'll be enough options where, hey, do you want to come to Canada in January? No, <laughs> no I already live in Minnesota. But if you got a gig in San Antonio in January, sure, sign me <laughs> up, you know, that that kind of thing. So uh, but yeah, I think I think I have much more control, much more power, much more authority now, too. Like I still do some coaching and that that's fun. I love doing, you know, one on one coaching. That's great. But I can say no if if I want to, if it's not the right thing. Uh, I used to do a lot more coaching. That's what I used to do. And what I found is that I ended up caring more about people's lives and their business than they did themselves. Yeah. And so like, I can't do that. I know I could take, I could cash the check and I could do it, but like, it would just drive me crazy. We meet every week or every couple of weeks and I'd be like, Hey, okay, how do we do on our, you know, what we're going to do the last couple of weeks? And like, yeah, I didn't get around to it. and You know I mean? Just like fine. I don't know why you're paying me, but it just sort of eroded that for me. So now I could take coaching clients that I feel like this is a good fit. This is somebody who's passionate about what they're trying to do. Because because frankly, if I just wanted to make money, I could go back to the corporate world. I could become an actuary, assuming I'm still marketable. I don't know. I assume I am. But if, if you know, I, I could do a lot of other things for money. What I want to do is I want to have impact. Yep. And so if if you want to get coached, cool. But I, I only want to coach if, if you're serious about wanting to change your life or change your job or, you know, increase your business, you know, same thing with speaking. Um, so I only want to go to a place where it feels like they're, they're hungry to receive what I have to say. Um, so that's, that's the, the the goal is to get to that point where I've got all those talks and I'm kind of choosing and they're all inbound from referrals and that sort of thing. And I can just really focus on my craft and then frankly, doing other fun things, you know, right now it's, been crazy you know I've been working a million hours and I, I love what I'm doing but I haven't played poker in several months and I used to you know try to play once a week uh you know I haven't really hung out with friends and watched a ball game uh I'd love to be able to do that and, and I could but when you know that there's all these things that are kind of piling up uh so you know part of that goal is to is to get to a point where I can actually really really enjoy life and and you know kind of kind of practice what I preach I guess
0: the final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge
1: know yourself it starts there and and when I say know yourself what I mean by that is you, you strip away All of those things that we've been told our whole life about what we should be, what we should do, what others expect of us, the defaults, all of those things. And so I think to really know who you are, to really know where you want to go and to really rise to the challenge to overcome those things. You got to know yourself. You you just do, and so then there's the things that you can do once once you once you know that. But I think a lot of times what we do is we go, here's a challenge. I'm going to overcome it because here's the way that other people have overcome it in the past. So they hear how I've done it. Oh, well, Steve quit his job and you know and and started his own business. I'm going to do that. And then they get there and they realize that's not that was never what I should have done. That's not me. I should have stayed in my job and done a side hustle or, or something different. And so I think a lot of times we see people that are doing what we want. To do, and we just kind of say, "Well, I'm going to follow that same path." I think you, you it, it starts. Yes, there's actions to take, but it starts with really knowing who you are, how you're wired, what your personality is, what your what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and really from a. Tr- True authentic place, not what they should be, not what people expect of you, but honestly, gut level. Who are you? What do you actually want out of life? Um, And I know I'm I'm taking a long time to answer this, but like I meet with business owners and talk to them and they'll be like, oh man, I got to figure out my business. I'll be like, okay, what are you trying to do with your business? Like, what's your goal? No idea. Okay, well, well, who are you? Like, what do you view as success for you personally? No idea. And I'm like, okay, it we have to do that work first because the rest of it's not going to matter because I could tell you that you should merge this. or I should tell you that you should diversify your trucking business or whatever it is. But if that's not really who you are, or what you want, you're going to get to the end of it and I'll get my paycheck, but you're, you're not going to be any less miserable. And so my, my encouragement is really do that hard work of figuring out who you really are, what you really want and strip away all the outside expectations.
0: Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you.
1: Well, thanks, Alex. Man, It's been been time flies. It was was fun to catch up with you and uh, next time I'll have to ask you all the questions, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to share.
0: Tune in next time here. My next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full-length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.